Any information in this podcast is not intended to promote or recommend any particular product or services offered by Bell's family and associates. It does not take into account the objectives, financial situation, or needs of any investor. Before making an investment decision, investors should seek professional advice. Good morning, Lucy, and good morning, Rashid. Great to be on with both of you guys. I'm going to call this session... Trading Places, the classic movie that culminates in ruining someone's life for a dollar bet. But the bet that kind of got this conversation started is Balaji's bet. He's the former CTO of Coinbase who said Bitcoin is going to a million dollars within 90 days. And he bet a million dollars, you know, on with somebody on that. And it is incited or perhaps was part of a whole bunch of folks talking about hyperinflation and this whole idea that after um, Silicon Valley Bank and First Republic, the new government programs and the expansion of the balance sheet mean that there is going to be the potential for hyperinflation in the U.S. and that your U.S. dollars will be worthless or worth a lot less. And that's why you need to own Bitcoin or gold or whatever is people's favorite. Fortunately, we've got Rashid on today, who is an expert in all matters to do with crises. Excellent. Good morning, Gavin. Good morning, Rashid. Welcome, everybody, to this week's Tomorrow's News. As you know by now, in this season of our podcast, we are bringing regular expert guests to share with our community their perspectives on the market and what's been happening. And I'm sure by now, Rashid is a household name to the Tomorrow's News podcast, having appeared on our show previously, talking about the RMB Yuan and most recently about SVB. Rashid, in addition to being an academic and experienced tech investor and podcaster himself, has written two books, including one on post-crisis bank regulation of mortgage-backed securities titled Regulating Securitized Products, a Post-Crisis Guide. Welcome back on the show, Rashid. Thanks once again for having me. Let's just jump right in. Let's talk about hyperinflation. So first of all, can you define for us what is hyperinflation technically and how you think people are defining it in this sort of Twitter conversation of today? I think Balaji's definition of hyperinflation, where you end up with so-called hard assets like Bitcoin at a million bucks in 90 days, could constitute hyperinflation. But the academic definition is 50% increase in the price level per month. That's quite substantial. We've had the highest inflation in the US in more than 50 years at 9% or 10% per year. Here we're talking about 50% per month. And it really incites our imagination. This idea of classic Western example of this is is the Weimar Republic's hyperinflation in the 1920s. And we have these interwar photographs of people using money to, to build kites Wheel, taking wheelbarrows around to buy their groceries. Contrarians, of which there are many in the venture space and in crypto, are very attracted these stories about how badly governments can get money wrong and how badly they can screw up what they are so good at doing, which is building businesses and making money. So I think there's, there's a lot to be said. And so there's, there's a real attraction. It's unsurprising that we see a lot of of these entrepreneurs on Twitter, especially, who are crying for hyperinflation. 
So 50% per month, maybe you see that in a place like Argentina or Zimbabwe or something, right? You don't, but I think importantly, people are now, you know, we've the US dollar is a global reserve currency. And if Bitcoin's going to go to a million dollars, that means necessarily the US dollar has to decline in value substantially. Is it even possible for the US dollar to decline 50%, right, without some new set of facts? How conceptually possible is that? In modern times, we've never had a hyperinflationary period where there wasn't an enormous foreign currency debt component to it, right? So the idea is, this is kind of your classic, too much debt is bad for you scenario, which is not necessarily the case in the US, which we can talk about maybe another time or today, which is Zimbabwe borrows a lot of US dollars, it spends them all, and then can't pay them back. So what does it do? It keeps printing more and more Zimbabwean dollars to pay it back, and that creates this hyperinflation. you got that in the former Yugoslavia, you got it in Venezuela, Argentina. But this is always because of a huge external debt. So the, the extent where fiscal conservatives get it right, they get it right in that you can't borrow too much of something else that you don't have. That's not the case for the U.S. dollar, right? The U.S. dollar, all the borrowings, are in the U.S. dollars. Every treasury security is in U.S. dollars. So they'll always have enough money to pay themselves back. And you'll still say, well, the, sort of the classic response is, well, what are you going to do? You're going to print it. And that's where they'll start to get upset, right? They say, well, the government's profligate. They spend all this money. They borrow all this money. Who's going to pay it back? How are we going to pay it back? We're monetize the debt. So Arthur Crypto Hayes, for example, another kind of Balaji a little bit less hyperbolic than Balaji, is basically making that argument that we're boring to pay for things today. It's going to all come back to roost. We have to print a lot of money. That's going to create hyperinflation. A guy like Arthur Hayes says, well, if you need to go and buy apples at the grocery store, they used to be $10 in US dollars. They're now going to be $50 in US dollars. You're going to somehow need to be able to keep up. You'd need to make five times as many U.S. dollars. That's his thinking, right? Go Inflate in U.S. dollar terms. Is that fair? Yeah. Hyperinflation means inflate a lot, right? So point where you're going to get a million-fold decrease in the value, which is what happened with the mark in Germany in the 1920s, right? One mark, you could buy an apple for one mark, then 10 marks, then a million marks, then 100 million marks. So this is what they're talking about. They're talking about hyperinflation. So a guy like Michael Burry from The Big Short or Jack Dorsey, when they talk about hyperinflation, this is what they mean. Like Balaji with the million-dollar Bitcoin is a perfect example of this absolute extremism on what will happen when the U.S. government starts to print money, which we'll get to in a second. But I think it's probably worth stepping back and just talking about what I said before about the Weimar Republic. That's the only case we have of Western inflation, hyperinflation. And it's trotted out all the time. Every German school kid learns that if hyperinflation is bad, spending money is bad, borrowing money is bad. Why? Because we got hyperinflation in Germany. That caused the rise of the Nazis, which caused the Second World War. Whole story is completely false. But let's break it down a little bit into what happened. After the First World War, the Allies were upset at Germany, and they demanded that Germany pay back war reparations that were by many people's standard, including John Maynard Keynes, is too much. So the Germans didn't have, they lost a lot of their land, they lost a lot of their money already, and they became the biggest borrower on the face of the earth, mostly the United States. But there was no way 
to the German government to pay those reparations. The Weimar Republic was very unstable and it required the far right and the right to support it. And they were not going to be paying their taxes. They were not going to allow for austerity just so the allies get their money. So what they did instead, it's a long, long drawn out story, but eventually they basically did have to print money. Wasn't it the case, though, that they were supposed to pay this money back in effectively gold, the equivalent of gold, right? Mm -hmm. They didn't have, they didn't mine gold or anything. And they effectively got further and further behind because they just couldn't generate enough gold, if you will, or gold back marks to, to repay this massive debt. That's right. So classic historian, this is Neil Ferguson, quite a famous, uh, one of the few very famous historian celebrities who came up with this argument that the German government actually understood this, what it was doing. It basically bankrupted itself. It turns itself an economic basket so it wouldn't have to pay reparations. So the idea was, let's do everything we can wrong with the economy. Right. And then in 1922, what happened was the Allies go, oh, forget it. You can just start paying us back in paper money and you can pay us a lot less. And this, this encourages mm-hmm. the German government to keep doing the same thing. And eventually the Allies kind of give up and say, you don't know us any more operations anymore. It didn't happen until the 30s and the 40s and 50s. As soon as the hyperinflation got out of control, by the way, it was a very short period. I'm not saying people didn't suffer immensely from hyperinflation by truck, by losing all their financial assets going effectively to zero very, very quickly. But it was basically like a, a year and a half, two year thing. As soon as the German government realized how bad it was, they stopped the hyperinflation. They raised taxes, they raised rates, they repegged the currency. And it all went away. This is not what happens in deflation. In deflation, we get other things happen and it takes a lot longer. But let's just pause there for a moment because we just had the Fed raise interest rates. There's clearly a concern about the impact of inflation and so forth. But you get a lot of people saying, well, yeah, Gavin, that's fine. But the Fed is out there printing money still, right? The balance sheet's grown. I can look on Twitter today and everyone's saying, oh, look, they're doing QT on one side and discount window on the other side or BTFP on the other side, and they are still printing money. And would your argument be, well, they may be printing money, but they're not printing hyperinflation. And why is it not the case? It's a good question. There's a bunch of response to that. The first one is, why did we not get hyperinflation or inflation in 2008? Largest fiscal expansion ever on record. The largest monetary expansion ever on record. And we got zero inflation <laughs> for 13, 15 years. So that blows monetarist minds. It blows the hard money, crypto and Wall Streeters mind. And then we get a bit of inflation, right? Money supply doubled, tripled, quadrupled during this period. We got what? 10% over two, well, 50% over two years. Not exactly the consequences anyone was expecting. So now, why, if we're going to bail out SVB and other banks and this, you know, the bond program and all this stuff and the Fed lines, why are we not going to get hyperinflation? It's the same reason. is because we're curing a problem, which is the money supply is decreasing. And actually, Crypto Hayes does a really good breakdown of what this means. He was a friend of mine, Perry Merrilling's distinction between inside and outside money. So inside money is bank balances. Right? It can be created anytime. It's very volatile, right? When a bank makes a loan, it creates money. That's really important. Outside money is cash. That's what the treasury is making, basically. What happened in 2008? 
What happened in 1931 during the bank crises in 31 also happened in 1921, which was the biggest deflation ever, by the way. And also the panic of 1907 is we had inside money collapsed because the banks couldn't lend. They stopped lending. They were losing money and the money supply got clobbered. So what do you need to do if you believe that we need to have money in the system to stem deflation? Then something has to compensate for the losses of the inside money. And that is the central bank's job. It's an interesting point, and you and I talked about it the other day, is that there seems to be this objection that many people make. In fact, many traders and macro guys and whatever will say to me, we shouldn't be bailing out these depositors, bailing out these banks. That money should be lost because the system would be better off, right? Everybody would be better if we had this cathartic moment. But what is the evidence of the three cases? What is the evidence of what actually happens when those loss events occur? That's a very good question. I totally sympathize with your predicament because it's, I agree with it. I agree that moral hazard is a very bad thing. It only makes sense, right? It pays your money, it takes your chances, right? Caveat emptor, blah, 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 blah. But the thing is, it's not just the lenders that suffer, the depositors that suffer, or, wherever happen, or the clients of the banks that suffer, right? It's the whole financial and therefore the whole economic system. So in a lot of the cases I mentioned, 1907, they used clearinghouse checks. Now, it was, they basically printed money. The banks printed their own money. In 1921, the Federal Reserve stepped in because that started in 1913. And guaranteed all the other banks were failing. In 2008, we got, like I said before, the biggest monetary expansion ever. Uh, In 2020, we got a huge COVID expansion, right? Fed expands balance sheet more than it ever had before. One time we didn't do that was in 1931 to 1933, where banks started to go under, the Great Depression was just started. And all types, all flavors of economists, from Milton Friedman, the monetarist, to the sort of rightist Austrians, to the leftist Keynesians, to the middle of the road Ben Bernanke's, all agree on one thing, that the reason why the Great Depression lasted as long as it did was because the Fed did not step in to provide enough outside money to compensate for the fact that the money supply was shrinking because all the banks were failing. I think most of us would observe or we would speculate that it's quite likely that credit conditions in America, and in fact, in globally, are tightening. Banks are a little more nervous about their deposits at the margin. Banks are a little more nervous about the economy and the impact each other's behavior will have on the economy, that the inside money is shrinking. It's probably shrinking quite rapidly. And perhaps that was why the Fed had a bit of a cautious tone. And some folks might say, well, all of this is going to just bring on even more expansion of the Fed balance, the balance sheet. You're going to need even more money printing. But by next year, Bitcoin's a million. Okay. That's sort of the the thesis, right? Like this deflation is just as helpful to them as the hyperinflation, if you will. There's two really key points there. One is how the central bank operates in a panic and how it operates over the long term. And the most important thing that central banks do bar none, is stem panics. Badgett wrote in Lombard Street in the, I guess, what's the 1800s, right? The classic central bank handbook, which is in a panic, lend freely on good collateral, 
at a high rate, punitive rate. So basically take in good collateral and make liquidity. And that's what central banks are supposed to do. That's what the Fed was meant to do. That's when it was founded in 1913. That was its entire goal, was to basically, during harvest time, when money was needed, provide that money, lend freely to the banks on good collateral, which at the time was basically short-term banker's acceptances and short-term paper owed by farmers and farmers' banks. Okay, so that's point one. Point one is when the conditions go bad like this, what that central bank should be doing something. And the argument they're making is, well, yeah, but they'll just keep doing it later on. The idea is, okay, we stem the panic, but we've got, there's so much more to do than we've got. Then we, we're going to extend the balance sheet. Like they can't control themselves. Once they get going on this, they never stop. So that's the second part of the argument. But why do they keep extending the balance sheet? The answer to that is a little bit more nuanced and somewhat controversial, which is that deflation is so much worse than inflation. When you have deflation... So let's just stop it. Deflation is so much worse than inflation. What is the classical definition of deflation so that we know what we're comparing it to? Deflation just means a fall in the price level, the basic price level. And in Japan, you get an example of what happens when you get even a modicum of deflation. Your central bank policy can't work. Now, we could argue a lot about do central bank policy work in general, but it definitely doesn't work when you have deflation because rates can only go to zero, right? So you can't ease any more than zero, which is why we have quantitative easing, bond buying, et cetera. But even that, it doesn't work. And the worst part about it is that the banking system is, unfortunately, reasonably geared to the credit markets. And it sounds really nice, right? If we have deflation, I bought a dollar. Let's say if I bought something with it, like a factory. I bought a dollar. My factory was worth a dollar. With deflation, it's now worth half a dollar. So now right. I can't pay it back, right? So if everybody can't pay it back, the bank's in trouble, right? You owe a dollar to the bank. You're in trouble. If you owe all the money to the bank, the bank's in trouble. And so what happens? The bank stops lending. Whole economy collapses. So that's what happens in deflation. It's called the debt deflation hypothesis. And Ben Bernanke won the Nobel Prize for providing evidence that was what happened in the 1930s. So the idea is we want to keep the balance sheet, we want to keep expanding the balance sheet to the extent that we are fighting deflation. We could certainly speculate perhaps that in the current environment of radically high short-term rates and banks sort of struggling with their own capital requirements and so forth, lending contracts, I mean, you could conceptually, could you could see deflation. Is that fair? Yes. So the bottom line is that's generally what happens in a banking crisis. So in the bank crisis in 1921, in 1933, 1931, I should say, to 33, and for a little bit of time in 2007, 8, we got deflation, right? So we definitely know that in banking crisis, we can get money contraction. And we expect it to happen. It's, it's, it's kind of like the standard approach. So we don't want that to happen here. We're not there yet, right? We're still in an inflationary period. But we're, so we're talking about one thing, stemming the panic was like the sort of the short-term right. obligation of central bank. And the long-term is to keep some small amount of positive inflation. So a lot of people always wonder, why is the Fed target 2%? That's because they don't want to target minus 2%. They don't want to get, if they target zero, they might get minus two, which is really bad. They target two, they might get zero, which they did for 15 years after the financial crisis. 
one part we kind of missed in this is there's a structural change that could be going on, which means that the Fed will have to expand its balance sheet, at least temporarily. And that structural change is this new idea. And it's not a new, it's a really new idea. It's been around for, in fact, the Bank of Amsterdam in the 1700s was one of these, which is called narrow banking. And that's the idea you hear a lot of people say, I'm going to take my money out of the bank and yield zero, and I'm going to buy a T-bill. Or I'm going to buy, I'm going to invest in something that just buys T-bills, i.e. a money market fund. Or what's called a narrow bank, a bank that just takes your money and does nothing else with it, but park it at the Fed, right? So there's no fractional reservedness to it. There's no credit risk. You don't need an FDIC. You just, this would be like a stable coin. They're a central bank digital currency. They're all backed one for one by high liquid securities. If that happens, little by little, or maybe, maybe all at once, depending on how it happens, we're going to have less money in the system, right? Because we're going to take a dollar from the banking system, which is leveraged, and we're going to put it into US government securities, okay? Every dollar that leaves corporate loan market and goes into your securities a dollar outside of the economic system, right? That would be very bad. Sort of seeing that a little bit potentially now, when money leaves fifth third and goes to JP Morgan, JP Morgan probably looks at that marginal deposit and says, hmm, it's kind of fast money, right? May leave, whatever. If it were sticky money, we might leverage it to 1.4 times or 1.6 or whatever. Maybe we'll leverage it to 1.1 and maybe we'll do nothing because for the next few months, we don't know if all these deposits that just flowed in are about to just flow back out to other banks or money market funds or who knows what. So that vastly constrains the amount of capital available in what I call the middle of the economy. JP Morgan doesn't lend to many farmers in Iowa, I I would suspect, but the Bank of Des Moines does. And so that change alone could be significant. And then you add on this idea of narrow banking, we're just going to take the deposits away from everybody. What's the implication of that? The argument for narrow banking is actually deflationary. That's why we have to be very careful on how it ends up happening. Because the argument that was used post-crisis was we borrowed all this money and what we do with it. We bought subprime, we invested in subprime mortgages because people were buying subprime houses, basically. And housing prices went up. Why? Because there was more debt available. The shadow bank system provided more money. They created money out of thin air, basically. And they invested in mortgages, which meant people could buy more houses, which means housing prices went up. Tuition is exactly the same thing, student loans, right? Why are tuition prices so high? I don't know. My personal opinion is it's because you can borrow all the money you need to, to, to go to university. And when you can borrow all the money you need, then there's no, you can always outbid the next person for the next, I don't know, Texas AM spot. So right. I think that the idea of narrow banking is to get rid of that excess leverage in the system, which should then make the markets a little less frothy. So prices should fall to some degree. What the central bank needs to do, what the banking system, what the money system needs to do is offset all of these different effects, right? You talk about this, uh, the Des Moines, Iowa effect, right? The tuition effect right now. Let's just say, for example, now there's no, there would be money in different ways, right? In private credit or something, but the banks would maybe no longer be doing this, right? Because all that money would be in U.S. treasuries in narrow banking. So there's all these effects that could happen. I don't think they're all bad. The bottom line here is 
the, there will be needs, there might be a need for the Fed to expand the balance sheet, but that would not necessarily expand the money supply and therefore would not be inflationary. I think the core point is that there are lots of bad effects of deflation. Central banks definitely want to get a hold of deflation as well as getting a hold of inflation at the margin. But the likelihood of hyperinflation is extremely low. And, it, and that one of the impacts here of all of these deposits heading to money market funds may well be extremely deflationary, which could be really quite interesting in terms of, a, of quite a quick pivot from where we've been over the last year or so. And this has been fascinating, Rashid. We need to have a session on narrow banking because it's such an interesting idea. I really appreciate your time today. It's been fantastic. And we'll see how Balaji goes. I don't know that he's going to get there. He's got to get to, he's got to get above 30K before he gets anywhere else. We'll see what happens with Bitcoin. Thanks so much. Thank you, Lucy. And um, we'll uh, look forward to seeing you guys uh, next week on Tomorrow's News. Bye, everyone. 